4: Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. I serve as the director of the American Museum of Natural History's Hayden Planetarium, right here in New York City. And I got with me in studio as my co-host, the nice Chuck Nice. Hey. Chuck. Yes. How you doing, man? I like that, the nice Chuck Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I I could say the terrible Chuck Nice, but I'd be lying. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) No, you would not. (laughs) So uh, today, you know, We had the opportunity to interview Temple Grandin. Yeah, fascinating woman. So so you saw the
0: movie? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, I got to uh, interview... I had to watch it because I had to do an interview with Claire Danes, who oh. played her in the movie. Oh,
4: okay, yeah. so cool. So I got her on Star Talk. Nice. Yeah, yeah, and she's quite the geek. It turns out, like a Star Trek geeky. She's yeah. like she's got geek in her. That's, well, that's all I'm a good. Saying. That's a good thing. That That's all I'm saying. And she she's a fascinating person because there are things she does and ways she thinks that like other people don't think that way. Right. It makes conversation with her fascinating. But then you can wonder: Well, is she this way? And insightful because she's insightful or because she has in the autism spectrum. And right. Does that give to her or take something away? You know, so did you have expertise in this, Chuck? Uh, in the fact that I am not a
0: genius, I know <laughs> okay. that. I can tell you what a genius isn't. <laughs> so I had to go out and get somebody
4: who was. <laughs> right. In studio with me is Dr. Paul Wong. Uh, doctor, welcome.
3: Thank you. Great to be here welcome. with
4: you. Welcome. And you're vice president and head of medical research at Autism Speaks. That's right. It's a, its own organization. It's a nonprofit
3: organization, 10 years old this year. Yeah.
4: Well, congratulations, 10 Thanks. years old. Did
3: you found it? Hardly. I've only been there about a year and a half, founded by Bob and Suzanne Wright.
4: Excellent. And uh, I, you know, in doing the homework for this episode, because I, I know very little about it, uh, Autism has its own awareness month. I didn't know that. April. April April.
3: is Autism Awareness. Now, how do you pick a month? How do you do that? Yeah, (laughs) that must be the uh, calendar gods. The calendar gods. AAA Uh, Autism uh, Awareness uh, Month in April. Oh. Oh. AAA Mm. Autism Awareness Month in April. It could have been
0: August. It could have been August. Yes. We should do it again. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, at least they didn't give you February like they did us. Mm-hmm.
4: Chuck can't go a single episode of Star Talk <laughs> without. <laughs> without okay, I got to get it in there. That's all. I think they gave you a leap year. <laughs> I'm sure that was on the table at the time. <laughs> so uh, we we know uh, most people who first heard of Temple Grandin know her because of uh, her, she's a pioneer in in how you handle livestock, right? right in, yeah. Livestock Handling,
3: professor at uh, Colorado
4: State, I think. Right, right, that's correct. And so, the, and, and she's one of the most, I mean, she was in the Time 100, in, in their Heroes
0: yeah. section. Yeah, revolutionized uh, the way you handle, like, cows. She did a lot of work with cows. Cattle, stuff. especially. Cattle, think, that's yeah. what I meant to say. I said cows, but I meant
4: cattle. Yeah, so what we're trying to do in this show today, as, as we feature my interview, we're trying to get to the bottom of what makes her tick. Nice. And why does she tick the way she does? How much of it is just because she's different, because any one of us is different from the other, but she's different in this other way? Or could it actually be this medical condition that uh, she has? And you're an expert in this? I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician. Oh, okay. I think that qualifies as an expert. <laughs> a, a
3: little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Work with hundreds of families affected by autism, and, and now, of course, with Autism Speaks.
4: Fantastic. And and so what's the goal of Autism Speaks? Autism
3: Speaks is, is the biggest science and advocacy uh, organization for, for autism. We want, we want to make everybody understand autism, be aware of it, mm-hmm. and do what we can to improve the lives of people with autism. Mm-hmm.
0: So now, uh, here's a simple question, and we may or may not have time for it. Uh, what causes autism? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, I was joking.
4: Yeah. <laughs> by the way, you know when people say it's a great question, it means they actually don't know the answer. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> that's exactly If they knew right. the answer, they just give you the right, answer. Exactly. So well, that's a great question.
0: No, right. I, I'm only saying that because of Jenny McCarthy and the oh. whole vaccine thing. And, oh.
3: Yeah. Uh-huh. Autism is a complex disorder. And I think like, like most complex disorders, neuropsychiatric disorders, it's caused by a combination of genetic vulnerability and environmental risk factors.
0: Man, that was the greatest way of saying I don't know I ever heard <laughs> in my life. That
4: was like like wiki page, I don't know. Here's a whole explanation. I've that been was, practicing that for months. I've got to tell you, that was awesome. This explanation <laughs> needs some more sourcing, too. You got a wiki info ticket on that one. <laughs> so uh, is it possible to have to f- have a first onset of autism as an adult, or is it primarily you see it in kids? Is that how Absolutely. That, it's
3: oh. a neurodevelopmental disorder. It starts very, very early. may actually start before birth. Oh, really? There there are changes in the brain that we
4: know are are part of development before birth. Okay. So it has its roots there. Temple Grandin, I mean, she she has a life story. I mean, if she's an adult and she's a functioning adult you know she's got some stories. Right. And let's hear the first part of my interview with her when she came to visit the Hayden Planetarium and came up to my office. Awesome. And I had to hide all the Star Trek things in my office because she's a Star Trek fanatic. I love this woman. I mean, wouldn't we otherwise be able to have this conversation because she'd want to talk about Star Trek. And I thought I couldn't like her anymore. OK, let's find out where, how she began.
1: I grew up in Dedham, Massachusetts outside Boston. Wait, that has a farm? Well, no, no. as a child, uh, no, it's a suburbs I had absolutely no contact with cattle until I uh, uh, went to a boarding school that had a small dairy with 12 dairy cows in it.
4: Oh, so the dairy, the, the dairy cows in the school were part of some educational curriculum?
1: Well, it's just they just had them at the boarding school and I worked at the farm. I took care of the horse barn when I was 15 years old, cleaned eight horse stalls out every day. Horses were my life when I was uh, 14, 15 years old.
4: You're dressed very horse-like now, yeah. you know, you've got a horsey thing.
1: Well, I was bullied and teased as horribly. And the only place where I was not bullied and teased were the specialized interest things. And they were horseback riding, electronic slab, and model rocket club. Ooh. Those. You, you were a rocket geek. Yes, I was a rocket geek. Ooh. And you know what I did? Cool. I made a rocket that looked like Mr. Pady, our headmaster.
4: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> did, wait, was that a compliment or an insult?
1: No, I was uh, kind of a compliment.
4: <laughs> well, that is. Cool, because when I did Model Rockets, there weren't many sort of girl rocket people. I mean, it was all boys, you know, and so were there other girls at the time?
1: No, uh, I think I was the only one. Yeah, that's what I'm
4: saying. That's what I'm saying. But
1: Mr. Carlock, my great science teacher, got me turned around in science and got me interested in studying. He also ran the Model Rocket Club.
4: Excellent. So a nice, a good influential teacher story right there, because some teachers do have the opposite effect.
1: Absolutely, because I, you know, I did a lot of work cleaning a lot of horse stalls. But then, uh, when you get a science teacher, that gets you interested. And if you saw the HBO movie, I actually did build the optical illusion room that was shown in the movie. Mm. And I was happy to when I found out the stagehands had a lot of trouble building that, even though they had the drawings off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so there are
4: some things that are true on television. <laughs> so, I, so Ooh. I had not known that her. Uh, you know, professionally, she she thinks about the design of arms and, and how you corral cows. The seeds of that were then very early in her childhood.
3: Sounds like it. Yeah, she was interested in animals from an early, early, early point.
4: Yeah. Now, back then, she would have been in school like in, in the 50s. and Wow. Yeah, that can't have been easy.
3: No, she has a really compelling story. She, she actually was thought to be what we used to call retarded. She Mm -hmm. didn't speak for the first few years of her life. And then through the hard work of her mom and then these other inspiring teachers, she got to be what she is now, which is amazing. And back back then,
4: people thought what caused autism back then?
3: Back then, in the 50s, they thought it was, quote, unquote, refrigerator moms. They thought it was moms who were emotionally cold. Just emotionally removed from their
0: children. Exactly.
3: Wow. Oh. That's that's something. So now, uh, you know, she
0: talked about being mercilessly. Uh, teased. Uh, Is there still a stigma attached to autism? We still have so much... I mean, are we we still... Yeah, are we still (laughs) in that point where we look at people, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or have we made some, some headway? We've made
3: headway, but there's stigma attached to all disabilities still, I think.
4: Okay. So common f- symptoms, so lack of speech, no interest in interacting with people.
3: Really, it's it's impairments in, in social interactions, impairments in communication. I don't want to say it's lack of interest. If you talk to Temple, if you talk to people with autism, yeah, they like other people, they want to have relationships, but it's hard for them. Oh, and how about their, their demeanor, their... It, it, they can they can seem cold because uh-huh. they don't know how to
4: interact. Got gotcha. you. Okay, because they uh, in in her book Thinking in Pictures, she allows the rest of us to become aware of how she sees the world, hmm. literally and figuratively. Hmm. And let's find out what the visual mind means to her.
1: Later on in my life, I, I found out how much my visual thinking was different compared to a lot of other people. And, and in the, my uh, book, The Autistic Brain, I have a whole chapter in there where I talk about two kinds of visual thinking. Object photorealistic visual thinking, like how I think, mm-hmm. and then more visual-spatial, where you are in space, visual thinking. And uh, One is
4: two dimensions, the other is three dimensions, if right. you think well, about it that way. That's
1: right. Well, one of them photorealistic, and the other is where are you located in space? Mm-hmm. And there's actual scientific research that verifies those two kinds of, um, of visual thinking.
4: And w- uh, and which one are you?
1: I am the object of photorealistic, more artist-type visual thinking or industrial designer-type visual thinking, and the mathematician is more where are you located in space in relation to other things.
4: So do you think there's, in the school system, there's not enough of that, that we're trained to have or can you learn it can you get can you get a little better at it if you don't if you're not born with it what I you think, think
1: you can you can get somewhat better at it but you're not going to take me and make me an algebra specialist algebra was <laughs> just impossible and I think in science we need both kinds of thinking because what I'm really good at when I review a journal article is looking at the methods because when I read the methods section of a paper especially an animal science paper a biology paper I want to I want to be able to visualize how did they do that experiment and then you got two different studies that come out with opposite results and I usually find if I read the methods I'll go oh well, they used a different breed of animal or they used young animals versus old animals and sometimes people will leave out really important things in the methods like what breed of pig did you use in that study but what I'm seeing now in science is everyone's all hung up on whether you use the latest SAS program and they fight over what statistics you use yes we gotta do statistics and I need to work with a statistician but you also need my kind of mind I call it the methods place to make sure that people are fully describing exactly how they did an experiment. So if somebody else wants to redo that experiment, they do use the same breed of animal, and they do it the same way.
4: Okay, so what you're saying is everything that we ever do that's new, we need you. We need you, like, in arm's reach. Because people, you know people are going to make messed up decisions. And I'm
1: worried now, with all the emphasis on math, of my kind of mind getting, you know, pushed off the team because I can't do the algebra.
4: Can having a photorealistic vision be distracting to you
1: no it's just the way i think my mind thinks like google for images and i've been thinking yeah, but about, it could be but wait a minute
4: it could be too much info. tmi maybe there's too much information and you and i can
1: control it i you can, can control, control it you have I, the power Yeah.
4: so in my field astrophysics you know half the field is visual yeah you got to get in the computer and program it but right. the, there are things we can only look at because we can't poke it, you can't stick it in a Petri dish. Right. You can't do any of this. So would it be cool if like, in fact, more visual people were in the world? And I told her that to her face. So the first time the cloning machine is invented, we'll just make more of you. So we can hand one of you to everybody.
1: <laughs> but there's the thing is, there's lots of little clones of me around and I'm worried about them going uh, out nowhere. And, and I'm, and I'm seeing too many of the little math kids too, uh, Uh, Especially when you get out away from the tech centers. Just um, kind of going nowhere.
4: So there are people... That was a brilliant answer to my question. We don't need the cloning machines. There are other people like you who are already out there. They're
1: already out there. And what I'm worried about is is where they're going to end up. I'm I'm seeing too many smart, geeky kids ending up in the basement playing video games. Things aren't being done that nurture the ability. When I was a little child, my mother encouraged my ability in art and a lot of these kids want to draw the same thing all the time. Well, I did horse heads over and over again, but I was encouraged to do lots of different things. Okay, this kid wants to just do nothing but anime characters. Let's do his car, let's do his house, you know. Let's broaden that broaden that fixation out. We've got to turn it into a skill that they can use.
4: That's the future.
1: Well, and the other problem you have with autism is I think it's difficult for special ed teachers to shift gears between the smart, geeky kid and yeah. very severe cases of autism that are definitely not going to be doing science or any other kind of high level job. Particularly if there's only
4: one word that's supposed to describe that's the whole the problem. continuum. the There's is a word issue here.
1: Well I'm seeing smart, geeky kids getting these different labels and not going anywhere. They're mm-hmm. ending up on Social Security playing video games mm-hmm. when they ought to be out in Silicon Valley or working on, on some kind of science project. Mm-hmm. Now the problem you've got with autism is that the other end of the spectrum you get an extremely handicapped kid, maybe can't dress himself, has epilepsy, yeah, we're going to need the social security check there. Right. But it's a very, very, very big continuum.
4: So the system is a blunt instrument. And That's it's, the it's, problem. it's as though it doesn't really know how to, where to, know where to draw the line. Yeah, Paul, this line, I mean, uh, they now speak of an autism spectrum a few a few years there, there was like Asperger's people. So wh- how does that work?
3: Yeah, the official classification has changed. There used to be separate diagnoses of autism and Asperger's. Now it's officially all this one big spectrum. And the problem was people weren't using those terms precisely. Somebody would say you had Asperger's and a different doc would say, no, you have high-functioning autism. So now we
4: talk about a spectrum. And I, once I read what was on that spectrum, I now can identify a fourth of my colleagues. <laughs> no, yeah. They used to be, oh, they're just not socialized. Right. And now it's like, oh my gosh. Autism they're precisely is common. explained by this. Absolutely. And people with
3: autism are amazing. They they have amazing minds like Temple showing you. People with autism in finance, in programming, inventing exploding guitars, all people with autism.
4: And, uh, and you always wonder who might your hero be if you have this condition. And I asked Temple Grandin that. Let's find out. So uh, Star Trek's your favorite uh, science fiction
1: Oh, I was a Star Trekkie. Oh, absolutely Mr. Spock is my favorite character.
4: Okay. Why wouldn't I have guessed that you could be <laughs> He's your guy. Yep. Right. And of course he's many people's favorite character. He was I don't think people like that were portrayed in that way before. He was straight, rational, the emotions didn't come in, and you needed him.
1: Well, I I really related to Mr. Spock and his, his logic.
4: Okay, in the Next Generation, was there data, was like data. That course. was
1: data, and I related the data. We data. had
4: data on Star Talk. Oh, it was great to have him yeah. on. Yeah. Would you not have liked the shows as much if you didn't see yourself in one of the characters?
1: I don't know, but I just um, of course when I was first starting to watch that show, you know, not as much was known about autism. You got to remember back when I was a teenager, there were no books about this stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. None of the, the none of the resources you have today existed.
4: Right, it's come a long way. Yeah. So do you agree? It's come a long way. here?
3: it, ha- it has come a long way. We, we talked earlier about the stigma attached to people with autism or other disabilities. It, it's much better now, but still, we have to make sure these people get the get the help they need, so we can cultivate them to become uh-huh. like Temple.
4: But we have like Rain Man is a is a character. It's a, a cultural icon at this point. And yeah. And- And others with other... Now, of course, he wasn't autistic, but even uh, Forrest Gump. There are people who are celebrated in their disability. Yeah, I didn't even know Mr. Spock was autistic, but
0: gosh, (laughs) I'm happy
4: to find that out. (laughs) But he, yeah, to the extent that he was not otherwise relating to people, he's got right. some of the properties of, of an autistic person, and we should celebrate them. All right, so we got to take a break, mm-hmm. but let me give you a hint of what happens when we come back. I asked her; I had to know if she could be reborn without autism. Oh, would she? Oh, I went there. Oh, you certainly. I did. so did go there. <laughs> we'll <laughs> okay. see when we come back on Starbucks. We are back on Star Talk. I'm here with Chuck Nice. That's right. Chuck, you're still tweeting. Chuck Nice comic. That's right. Excellent. At Chuck Nice comic. Uh, I follow you. I follow you too. Indeed. And I have here uh, Dr. Wong. Uh, hello. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you Loving tweet? it. Do you tweet? Uh, no. Sorry, not yet. Well, okay. We got to work on that. Right <laughs> 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 so you so uh, you're a medical doctor and expert on autism. The future of this, is it? In the study of neuroscience, is it in, I mean, do you know what causes autism at all? Because certainly a whole lot of people think they know, and they're not vaccinating their children. So. What what is the latest research on this?
3: In general we don't know. We we know some of the factors that increase your risk for autism. Uh-huh. There are genetic risk factors, there are environmental risk factors and probably those things interact with each other. So you're genetically vulnerable, then you meet up with the environmental risk factor, boom, and then it kicks in. Exactly. Yeah. Okay.
4: But right now as far as you know, you can't inherit it from your parents. In most cases no. no. That would that would have shown up in the data already. Right
3: there there definitely is a familial influence and that shows in in the genetics if you have a brother let's say with autism then you're much more likely to be diagnosed yourself
4: okay and so the future of neuroscience are they on the hot on the trail on this
3: absolutely very cool neuroscience going on looking at what is different in the autism brain both in terms of the electric waves that are happening this is like an fmri fmri f- 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 looking a fun- at activation magnetic
4: resonance energy. right That's so it. they're thinking while you're measuring yeah, exactly. So we or- we've already identified the part of the brain that isn't facial recognition, and you should already know what's not connecting to those parts of the brain. A, a big theory is that the the problem in autism is actually the connections. Okay. So,
3: so you have different parts of the brain that aren't working quite right, but maybe it's because they're not communicating with
4: the other parts of the brain that all need not to be Not because they themselves are not functioning as a part of the brain. Could be- a, That would be Could
1: so be both cool. things. Yeah.
0: Then, then, then you just well, stitch then it back together. Well, you got to figure out how to- Plug them back Plug in. Plug them back
4: in. And that's it. A- 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 and you're there. Plug Look at play. that. We,
0: we've cured autism. <laughs> right here
4: oh on my Star God! Talk. <laughs> on <Star laughs> Talk.
1: Look at that.
4: So let's find out uh, what Temple Grandin thinks about the future of neuroscience.
1: Genetics is a very, very big, big factor in autism. Because I have found if you have families where you've got, you know, computer science, dad. Uh, Silicon Valley, they seem to be clusters. I I see that showing up on my web page results. You know, you take two geeks and you put them together. Unfortunately, there's sometimes a chance of having a kid with severe autism. It's not Mm going to end up working at at Silicon Valley because it would be nonverbal and
4: On that continuum, there is the other extreme.
1: Then there's the other Mm -hmm. extreme. Einstein had no speech until age three. In a lot of school systems, he probably would have been diagnosed with autism. Let's look at Van Gogh. I profiled him in my book Thinking and Pictures. How about Steve Jobs? And he was a weird loner who brought snakes to school and he was bullied and teased. Steve Ted. Jobs, yeah. Yeah. The thing that saved him was the high school local garage computer club. Mm-hmm. Again, getting mm-hmm. in with those other science geeks.
4: So the system needs ways to nurture those who don't fit the mold that we want everyone
1: well, any, homogenized okay, into well the other thing we need to do because I, the other thing i've talked to a lot of parents and a lot of people where they have little math genius kids and you've got a kid that's in fourth grade they're making him do baby math and then he's behavior problem i go okay that kid's probably going to need special ed in reading because they often have trouble reading but he might need to do a high school math book well then give him a high school math book just keep advancing in my head. Another thing you have is some kids can do the math without having to do the calculations. Mm-hmm. And I just go, lock them in a room, stripped of electronics, because I've got to rule out cheating. And once I've absolutely ruled out cheating, then just let them do it that way. Yeah, You've yeah. got to realize he thinks differently. And when I do my autism talks, I've got slides I show extreme origami that some of these kids have made on you know, folding patterns for origami. I go, this is not my mind, but this is the other kind of other kind of visual, spatial, uh, mathematical pattern thinker.
4: Well, here's what I wonder. Let me ask you a, an ethical question. Once we learn more and more about the brain, we might develop methods and tools to get inside there and make alterations. You going throughout your life, people saying, well, she's weird, she can't do the math, she can't do this, yet you have something extremely important to contribute. What would have been the urge to say, well, fix this?
1: Well, the thing that worries me is, let's say you made me social, you uh, know, took a lot of scientists and things, and made them social. They wouldn't have done the science. See, I kind of think right. there's a big range here. A brain can either be more cognitive or a brain could be more social, and there's a great big range because I've often said, "Who do you think made the first stone spear?" It wasn't the yakety-yaks around the campfire.
4: <laughs> it was the yeah, It was the person focused.
1: It's some person that today would be labeled mild Asperger or mild autism that probably made that first stone spear. <laughs>
4: So society needs a little bit of everybody, right? It sounds like. Would you, you agree with the, with that assessment there? Absolutely, we need them. We need <laughs> them. So tell me about the the rest of what many people stereotype for autism, such as the, what used to be called idiot savant, the, oh, the yeah. savant elements of autist, some autistic people. It, it is a big they, spectrum. Are they are those people autistic?
3: I think some of them are. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It, and it is a big it's a big bucket, a big spectrum. So you have people like Temple who are doing great who are doing great in society, but then you do have kids who haven't developed language yet, who really are impaired, who need a lot
4: of help. So Temple has a good hard-earned and well-deserved reputation and contributions. I'm talking about the people that have singularly odd
0: uh, mental powers. There's one that comes to mind is a young man who can play anything that he hears audibly. I don't care how complex the piece may be, he is Mm -hmm. able to replicate it right away. But not only replicate it, he is able to then in turn enhance it, but he is severely
4: autistic. I mean, like that scene in the movie Amadeus where he hears the notes once and then plays it back and enhances it. (laughs) Um, Could you give us the top three stereotypes that people have for autistic people that you want to uh, overturn? Yeah, dispel.
3: I think number one is that they don't care about other people. If you talk to people with autism, they'll tell you, actually, they do. It's just that it's really hard for them to interact, to to be social and express it, exactly. Mm. So that's number one for sure. Okay,
4: thank thank you.
3: Number two is something we've been talking about already, that they'll never amount to anything, that they're retarded, that they can't contribute to society. And that's false, too. And and we're hearing about that firsthand from Temple, and, and we've learned that from a lot of other people as well. Those are really the big two, I think.
4: So, and she made the er- interesting point in the in, in the earlier clip that yes, there are people who will be collecting the 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 the, ch- the Social Security check or whatever, but the rest get them out there, right. and, absolutely. And but can you do you know how to draw that line? Is that an awkward thing to do?
3: I, I think the key is to start working with the kids early, and she was talking about that too. And then hopefully most of them will be out there, mm-hmm. will be doing something. It's it's a tough hill to climb, and most people with autism now as adults living at home don't have regular employment, we need to work on that.
4: At some point you have to say, I can train this person or I can't train this person. That line that you draw might be different ten years from now than it is today.
3: Absolutely, I think at and, this point you got to give everyone a chance, and and more
0: awareness may lead to that line being pushed back because as people become more aware, more educated about autism, then when we spot it, when you uh, spot it, you're it you're is. able to say, oh, I know what to do with this person now, or right. how to approach helping this person Absolutely. Uh, succeed. So, right. you so know.
4: Oliver Sacks wrote this book, An Anthropologist on Mars. Okay, and that title refers to Temple Grandin. Which I think is cool. That is cause, cool because first it references Mars <laughs> for any other reason, and it also references <laughs> that Mars had a civilization at yeah, one point. It says it, no, though you are you are from another planet, and everything else is a fresh observation for you. Right, watching people be, behave and conduct themselves. Let's let's hear what she has to say about that reference.
1: Well, you see, when I was very young, I didn't know that my thinking was different. I didn't even know that people had all these eye signals until I read about them when I was fifty years old. And and but sometimes I mean where they give
4: hints to one another from a distance Sometimes
1: I felt like I wasn't anthropologist on Mars like I'll be on a plane for example I'm in a window seat and the people in the aisle in the middle seat are like having a romance going on And they're kind of looking at each other's eyes and they're just like they're off in heaven And I'm like I feel like I am an anthropologist on Mars you know studying the Martians here on this plane that are beside me (laughs) <laughs> you know so so
4: when you're if you're so just to follow that through if you otherwise have no idea what people are doing with one another and you're simply observing it, Right. that is the most unbiased scientist you can be as an observer of cultures.
3: Yeah, I mean, Pete, as Temple is saying, she just couldn't understand what people were doing when they were interacting. It comes naturally to people who don't so have she doesn't.
4: she doesn't layer her own expectations right. or knowledge or right. presumptions. Right. In fact, we have to do that. Oh, does she like me? Does she not like
0: me? Did she look in my direction? Yeah, because it's the social cues that let you know that uh, you have crossed the line, you're now a stalker. <laughs> that's right.
4: But the yeah. social cues... Not only let you know when you cross the line, they also tell you if you didn't see it coming. Right, right. There's a cue that you should have picked up yeah. on and you didn't. Right, yeah, and there, yes,
0: exactly. It's just like you know, why isn't he getting that? I want him to ask me out. Right now, why I'm
4: using a guy? Well, that's because guys. Are I adults, don't know but that's well known. why that just happened. <laughs> okay, but you know what I'm saying. What does neuroscience say about empathy? Because there are people who are not autistic who don't have empathy like certain kinds of criminals who can Yeah, I was going to say relate. we we do call them sociopaths. Oh, come on. there's a word. That's the word <laughs> That's for it. The word. <laughs> All right. There, That's got to be a big factor in the studies. Oh yeah,
3: there's been great research actually on on empathy and and how hard it is for people with autism. Some of this comes out of England actually from a guy named Simon Baron-Cohen. He's a cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen as it turns out. I was going to guess that, Get but out of right. But he, he shows pictures just of people's eyes and he asked them that he asked the subjects try to tell me what emotion this person is showing. Are they... Angry? Are they dreamy? Are they upset? Are they happy? People with autism have a really hard time doing that. Just like Temple was saying,
4: right? And it's it's. But is it trainable? It's hard to train.
3: And it like like Temple was saying, she's we really train Chuck.
4: He, t- he out pretty good. <laughs> yeah, think. but I'm he still
3: did.
0: a sociopath. <laughs>
3: See, Chuck. that's the problem.
0: <laughs> Believe it or not, though, that is what sociopaths do. They don't feel the em- the empathy, but unlike somebody like Temple, they learn the actual cues that they should be mimicking Responding as feelings. So, you know, the angry eyes, they recognize as anger, and then they respond in kind, but they don't really feel anything when they do it. Mm. Yeah. Got a feeling I'm going to get a call from the FBI after this show. <laughs>
4: Um, Is there a tendency for artistic people to need uh, to be medicated? Because Temple had strong sort of bouts with anxiety.
3: Yeah, definitely. A a lot of people with autism have other medical issues going on. Psychiatric things like anxiety. uh, Epilepsy also, you need medication for that. Mm -hmm. Other medical problems too. she,
4: She talks a little bit about this. Let's find out what she says.
1: Another problem is us visual thinkers tend to have a lot of anxiety issues and uh, antidepressants uh, prevented me from you know, getting hooked on drugs and alcohol and things like mm-hmm. that. And some people have higher fear or lower fear. I'm a uh, real high fear. In fact, um, my amygdala or fear, fear center is three times larger than normal. But for the last 35 years, my fear has been controlled with antidepressant drugs. Because I used to have horrible, horrible panic attacks just all the time horrendous stress-related What's well, the top problems. of this,
4: well, not to get all in your personal life, but an example of...
1: Well, imagine having terrible stage fright all the time. Like okay. you're going to do the biggest job interview of your life, you're going to do the biggest speaking engagement of your whole life, and you were that nervous all the time for no reason. That's the way I used to be. Wow,
4: but you're totally chilled right now.
1: Well, you know, when my very first talk I ever gave in graduate school, I panicked and walked out. Uh-huh. I wasn't totally chilled in the beginning. Okay. Well,
4: that's ho- that's hopeful for people. I wanted to hug her at that point. Yeah. That here is somebody who said, here was my problem. Here was the solution. Here was the dose. And now now we're cool. I'm chilling with her in my office. I mean, it gives me great hope for medicines of that kind for that purpose. If I'd get, tip my hat to the the psychopharmacologist or whoever it is that's out there doing this.
0: It can help. No question. I, I'm just sorry that I spent all this time uh, doing drugs and alcohol instead
3: of taking antidepressants.
4: <laughs> you couldn't sh- <laughs> But uh, is there the risk of addiction in people?
3: Yeah, the, these drugs, of course, have side effects like all drugs. We don't want them overused, but they, they have their place, and they can be very helpful for some people with autism.
4: Uh, but you have to, thats it, he just sounded like, yes, we just trial and error. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that is kinda, <laughs> kind of what it that is, what you though, right? Because you said it's
3: trial you and know, error. That's basically what you just said. medicine's an empirical science, right? right? We try things. If they don't work, we you stop them. try something else. If they
4: work, great. Right. If it doesn't work, then you stop it. Okay. What I, what I always wondered, also as an educator, I I don't like seeing intellectual capital go untapped huh. in anyone. And and now I see why she'd be the Time 100 in the hero category because she she'd be a hero even if he didn't have autism. Just somebody who who has achieved, who has figured out what was quote wrong with her, taken some of that, exploited it, taken the other part, fixed it. And now she's she's carving a path mm-hmm. that everyone else is gonna have to is gonna want to emulate who might have the challenges that she has. She's That's absolutely. fantastic. We hey. want everyone like this to be what they can be. Is this one of the goals of your organization? Absolutely. Well, Dr. Wong, thank you for coming with us on Star Talk. It's been fun uh, on this journey. I learned a lot yeah. interviewing her, and I learned a lot listening to you. And, and Chuck, you knew all of this already, right? Oh, yeah. You know what can I say? Me and Temple, we're geniuses.
0: We're way back.
4: <laughs> we're back. Star Talk. Graf Tyson here, Jack. Amen. Doing good. Yes, sir. You know, we've been featuring my interview with doctor and professor, hair doctor professor Temple Grandin. Yes. And...
0: Uh, Fascinating woman.
4: Yeah, I want to talk about her work with animals. Uh, this is more closely related to her profession and how she's employed. Right. And uh, and pretty sure, since you like grew up in Philly, you don't know anything about farm animals. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I had to bring in some expertise. Yes. And so we, I, I brought in Paul Shapiro. Yes, Paul. Paul. Welcome. Neil, Chuck, yeah. great to be with you. Yeah, he's uh, vice president of the Humane Society of, of the,
0: the United, United States. States. Is there a Humane Society outside of the
2: United States? <laughs> in fact, Chuck, we do also run Humane Society International. Oh, okay. Global baby. So he's thinking about farm animals, but
4: he's a vegan. So, is that the right? But don't you need someone who eats animals to, to, <laughs>
2: to, to, to understand? You, yes. must, uh, you must have a kid to be against child abuse, right? That's the only way you can be against child abuse. You know, is to if be you honest, have a kid. I,
0: I, I got to tell you the truth, I was never against child abuse until, uh, <laughs> until, I, you had kids. until I had children.
2: <laughs> now you understand. And now
0: I'm like, oh, so that's what this is about.
4: <laughs> you know? Well, she revolutionized the cattle industry mm. with her, and she, she figured out. How to create humane animal handling facilities. Wow.
2: Paul, did, you guys are well aware of this in your world. <sighs> Dr. Grandin has done a remarkable work to help reduce the suffering of animals at slaughter. And especially there's like cattle. statues
4: to her on the <laughs> farm. <laughs> 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 so, no, no, well, the people didn't. It right. Just, the, the animals. The cows around, did.
0: The cows hey, you go to any farm and there's a cow looking up at a statue of <laughs> Temple Grandin.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we discussed her autism and. You know, it, it's it's often people will think of the autism and say, oh, well, she did this in spite of the autism. You right. know, she did these great things. But maybe, in fact, she did it because of the autism. Wow. It's Because the autism gives her a different outlook that the rest of us don't have because nobody else was thinking that way to achieve those design changes. Gotcha. So let's take a look at uh, another clip of my interview with her where she – talked about the very fear that she has. She has, she has strong anxiety issues, medicated anxiety issues. Let's I mean, find out what role that actually played in her insight into designing farms.
1: Where I got into the head of the cattle was the things that they were afraid of. You see, back when I first started working with the cattle, I didn't realize I was an extreme visual thinker, things completely in pictures. Mm-hmm. In fact, some brain scans shown in the autistic brain book actually show that I have a huge big visual circuit. So I started going out to these ranches and feed yards in Arizona and I noticed cattle would balk at a shadow, refuse to walk over a shadow, refuse to go by a reflection, There'd be a chain hanging down, they'd stop, wouldn't go through the veterinary chute, hang a coat on the fence, refuse to go by it, and they were afraid of all these little visual details. And nobody else had noticed this before. And, and it just seemed so obvious to me because I found if you get rid of all these little visual distractions and you make sure it isn't too dark because they don't like to go into dark places. Who does? Um, then the cattle would walk through the chutes. And it seemed obvious to me, and now I've learned later on that a lot of other people are not a visual thinker to the extent that I am, and that's why they don't see it.
4: So it's not that you actually got inside the head of the cow. You just made a connection that no one else ever thought to make.
1: Well, that's right. And the other thing big inside ahead, is how animals make fear memories. Like dogs get afraid of things, horses get afraid of things. And that something can
4: happen once, and then they're afraid that's of it evermore. Right
1: but it's sensory-based. Like uh, in one of my earlier books, Animals in Translation, you talk about the horse that was scared of black cowboy hats (laughs) because during a veterinary procedure, someone had thrown alcohol in his eyes and he was looking at a black hat when that happened. Now, white cowboy hats were no problem, but black cowboy hats were bad. Or another animal that was terrified of diesel powered equipment, but if a piece of equipment ran with a gas engine, then it was fine.
4: Because diesel makes a different kind of noise. That's
1: right. And maybe this happened to be an elephant, and maybe someone had done something to it with construction equipment and that would have been diesel powered. But they tend meanwhile, to Meanwhile,
4: people are saying it was just an engine. No, and they're not really not. thinking closer about it.
1: But you see you gotta think sensory. Mm-hmm. Diesels sound different than gas engines. You know, they, the animal tends to associate something it was looking at or hearing Right when the bad thing happens.
0: So uh, horses are racist. <laughs> <laughs> that's basically what I learned. Why did uh, God beat a black? Of, of course. I'm like once again.
2: Okay.
4: Well, that's uh, That's
2: fascinating, though.
4: So, Paul, uh, have you read Animals in Translation?
2: I have Is read it, it, and I would only wear a white cowboy hat. <laughs> it's Just because you get kicked in the ass, <laughs>
4: you have a horseshoe imprint on your on your. Uh, what can you tell us about that book? That.
2: It's a great book. I mm-hmm. highly recommend it. And one of the most interesting things that I remember from it is that Dr. Grandin talks about, of course, there are all types of environmental problems that we cause for farm animals in the way that they're housed. And one of the biggest problems is that we're genetically selecting them to overdrive them. So she talks in the book about how today's chickens have been bred to grow so big that they balloon up and many of them can't even take more than a few steps without collapsing. And this is one of the bigger problems that farm Chicken animals Chicken obesity face.
0: is a Chick- big problem?
2: <laughs> hey, man, you are what you eat. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Chicken oh. obesity. Chicken obesity. These,
0: <laughs> these mm-hmm. birds
2: are monsters compared to what the ancestors of the today's chicken were. I mean, these birds can barely even walk toward the end of their lives.
4: Mm. So, but what I try, maybe it's semantic, but to say she taps into the mind of the animals, is is it fair to say that? Or is it just, yeah, she sees the world differently than right. the rest of us?
0: Yeah, she's not tapping into their mind like the force. <laughs> <right>? You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> I, these are not the cows you are looking for. <laughs> these are not the cows we are looking for. <laughs>
4: It's well, a, or, or Spock, mind melding <laughs> with, with the chicken, you know? <laughs> uh,
2: I mean, in all honesty, I think that she can see the world in a way that perhaps cattle might be able to see them more visually. But, of course, there's a humongous difference between cattle to pigs to chickens. I mean, you're dealing with difference between birds and mammals in some of those cases. So uh, I don't think that any one person could look at the way that all farm animals see the world. But I do accept that she probably sees the world differently than non-autistic people do. And that may be more similar to how some cattle do, too. So she works at college. Colorado State University where she's a professor and I didn't know this. She authored
4: like 400 scientific papers. Wow. So she's totally going at it, yeah. right? Making making this happen. There was a film about her that, that made a big deal of the curved corral. Can you tell me about that briefly?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So cattle want to return to where they were coming from and so if you have them walking in a straight line many times they'll balk and they'll want to go back and so she invented basically a curved chute so that let's say you want to vaccinate cattle on the farm you bring them in a curved chute so you go to a semicircle for them and so that way they're much easier to vaccinate than if you were to have them just go straight there. Where's the there? To Let's say a vaccination. You need to put animals in a chute to vaccinate them, oh, for example. Oh, okay. So, it's so if
4: com-
0: they feel like they're going to return from whence they came, yeah, and they they're are more likely case. to
2: cooperate. Yeah, they're more likely to cooperate, and they are returning from whence they came because they get vaccinated, and they go back to where they were.
4: So what's interesting to me is what's this expression, do this until the cows come home? Uh, that
2: implies they never want to come home. Uh, yeah, that might be another one of these false... that, that. One. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this might be another one, kind of like out of thin air, and you realize that, you know, air actually isn't that thin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell it to an asteroid or slam that, into
4: the air and or it, break
2: up. Or it
0: could be like when the cows were on dri- the cattle drives to go off to be sold and slaughtered because
4: they're never coming home. That could be, Chuck. You know. That could be, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, Paul, you're not a meat eater. That's true. and And Chuck? Oh god yes <laughs> okay. Are you kidding me Wrong show to have
0: that attitude that J- like I, that When I when I hear the name <laughs> Temple Grandin I'm I think
4: steak all right. I, I, half of all cattle is now handled in, in the designed facilities that uh, she influenced. Is that, is that about right?
2: In the United States, half of the cattle go to slaughter plants that she influenced, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I always... Why, why only
2: 50%? I mean, if, if it works so well, why hasn't it been embraced by the industry as a whole? The meat industry isn't necessarily known for its progress and progression on a lot of issues, Chuck.
4: I got you on that one. I asked her about this because I, I always wondered if you're going to care about the animal... Then you're going to eat it. <laughs> it's just, let's, let's find, I mean,
1: let's, let's it's just much it's a simple
4: thought. Let's find out what, what this, where this goes.
1: People asking me all the time, how can you care about animals and be involved in slaughtering them? One of the things I got to thinking was those cattle would have never have existed at all. The I think about this all the time. would have never have lived at all. We've got to give those animals a decent life. Mm-hmm. There are problems. Mm-hmm. You know, there's problems with pushing the metabolism of a dairy cow too hard. There's problems with the beta agonist growth promotants and things, pushing metabolism too hard.
4: Well, what happens um, if you do?
1: Well, you get lameness. You can get stiffness. Chickens, if they grow too fast, and that's just done with genetics. And... And one of the things that I've worked on on animal welfare guidelines is outcome standards. I don't care what you feed them or how you breed them, but that animal better not be lame and in pain. All right. All right. Uh, it better not have a good body condition. Uh, it better be in an environment where it's not going to get lung damage from ammonia. Back in 1999, I worked with McDonald's Corporation and Wendy's to implement animal welfare audits at slaughter plants. And boy, I can tell you, before 1999, the plants were bad broken equipment, uh, they'd have problems with, you know, we couldn't get cattle shot on the first shot because a gun was busted, and things are not perfect today, but they're much better than what they were in the past. And there's still
4: room to go, but oh, it's it, the trend lines are, are are.
1: But compared excellent. to the early 90s and the 80s, things have drastically improved. I mean, I used to go into plants on the night shift back in the early 90s and the 80s, and you'd have four broken, none. Uh, captive bolt guns and they were shooting every animal five times. It was absolutely atrocious. Mm.
4: These are the bolt guns that they shoot into the temple, yeah, I guess. Well, they shoot right
1: into the forehead of the cattle. It's got a steel bolt about six inches long. Bam! Right in the right forehead of the cattle. And when it works right, it will uh, make them brain dead instantly.
4: Instantly, right.
1: Instant and if it doesn't deck.
4: work, it's like, that's bad. It was then, totally bad. Right.
1: It's totally bad. And, mm-hmm. and these guns require a lot of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Now most of the plants have a dedicated maintenance program. They put the gun on a test stand to measure that it hits hard enough. You know, before the McDonald's audit started in 1999, none of that existed.
4: Paul Shapiro, you are Vice President for Farm Animal Protection at the Humane Society of the United States, and you're a and you're vegan, so is this even the right question to ask you? What's the most ethical meat we can eat? Uh, <laughs> that, well, just listen,
0: are you the wrong li- person li- to li- ask?
2: Listening to that quip and watching Chuck's face as she described the slaughter process, I wondered what he was thinking about Oh, I was that. thinking
0: about no country for old men, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs>
2: So, uh, you know, look, most of the animals who are raised and killed for food in our country suffer in ways that most people wouldn't want to see. Uh, However, there are some farms that are treating their animals better, no doubt about it. But one of the things that I've thought is most interesting about this whole issue, yes, there are some farms treating their animals better, and there are also companies now that are producing meat where – no animal was slaughtered whatsoever. They're taking a cell from an animal mm-hmm. and growing cultured meat that's anatomically identical to regular animal meat because it is animal meat. Mm-hmm. And that's what people are doing. So, yes, there are more ethical options out there that, for example, Whole Foods has higher standards than other supermarkets, but this cultured meat may be the next wave Whole of the Whole Nobody's
0: eating your laboratory meat, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Just letting you know. Chuck,
2: right now you're eating meat from animals who lived in their own feces, pumped full of antibiotics and hormones. And that that's what, what makes reading. them
0: taste so delicious. <laughs> that's the good part. That's the good part.
2: You love
4: the hormones.
0: Okay. I'm not the petri dish meat is not happening. <laughs> so
4: here's here's a here's a fascinating question. When you think about just the genetics of selectively breeding animals, you can breed them to maximize something or to optimize something. Maybe that's the same concept. And and so this came up in my conversation with Temple Grandin. So let's find out her take on this. Racehorses are pretty edgy.
1: Well, I'm it concerned was, uh, about what I call biological system overload with racehorses. We're breeding to run, we're breeding to run, so you're breeding great big muscles on a matchstick legs. Right. I mean, the fact these horses have broken their legs when they're just running on soft dirt, that's totally horrendous. You know, if you overselect an animal for some single trait, you're going to end up with bad things happening. And I call that biological system overload. You know, the dairy cow right now has gotten to where she's producing so much milk, she won't breed back. You know, she's got to have a calf every year to to keep milking, and, and if she's put so much into milk it is she, that it's hard for her to breed.
4: So, so it's the cost of success, the unintended consequences of the successful uh, genetic selection. Yeah,
1: what we have to do is look at what would be optimal, not the maximum. what would be optimal. We don't want to go back to the dairy cow of the 60s or 70s. We certainly don't want to do that. But what wait, would wait, be that the they optimal they ga- just gave level? less milk. Oh, yeah, they gave less milk. Mm-hmm. They also lived longer. We've got some dairy cows right now that only last for two or three years of lactation takes you two years to grow a dairy cow. If it takes me two years to grow a dairy cow, where she's a full-lactating milking dairy cow, and only use it for two years, that's not very efficient. Not very efficient use of resources. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you cut back a teensy bit on the milk production, then you have a dairy cow that lasts for five years of milking.
4: Then your total milk is greater.
1: Yeah. They're, they're very difficult to breed back now. Mm-hmm. She's putting so much into milk that she's not putting anything into repro.
4: So tell me about stress in animals versus... Abusive animals Maybe it's the same thing
2: Yeah, sure I mean, it can be abusive To cause them stress But as Dr. Grannon is pointing out Right now, we're breeding animals To really overload them So, for example Think about turkeys We've bred turkeys right now To have breasts that are so huge That they can't even mate naturally So what you have You know, Hollywood has done The yeah. same <laughs> thing, Paul <laughs> was that, that was an alley-oop for you, Chuck I throw it up, you slam it in Wait, <laughs> Chuck you, <what? laughs> I'm sorry. God. But the breasts are so large, they can't mate. The tom cannot mount the hen. And so there are dudes on turkey farms whose sole job it is, is to collect, in quotations, the semen from the toms, and then transport it over to artificially inseminate the hens. So every, virtually every single turkey that is eaten in this country comes from the process of artificial insemination just because they've bred them so big that they can't even mate. Wow. I, was,
4: I was once at a Thanksgiving dinner, and the guy boasted that he had shot a wild turkey and brought it in. Turkey on the table. I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> it was like, no. No meat on no it. No meat on it, right. I felt like it was during the Depression or something, and we got a pigeon out from the back. From the...
2: <laughs> and interestingly, the turkey is the only Native American farm animal who we eat in this country. All the other farm animals we're eating are not native to our continent. But So you're saying turkeys are Native Americans? <laughs> they are. <laughs> is they that are. what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> they are. And in fact, Ben Franklin wanted the turkey to be the national, national symbol bird. rather than the Amer- rather than the bald eagle. You
0: know, that's the only thing about Ben Franklin that I don't like. <laughs> I love everything else about Ben Franklin. He is my hero, except that one fact, because you can't be tough with the turkey as your national symbol. You, know?
2: you should go try to look at a wild turkey, man. Very fleet-footed, fast runners, fast flyers. That's what I'm saying. I,
4: I, I could bear. There was no food to feed everybody at the table with the turkey. <laughs> uh Temple wrote a paper called "Animals Are Not Things." And do you have thinking about this? I mean
2: that. I mean, there are things there, I mean, what, what. There are things in the way that we're things. We're all animals and animals like turkeys and other farm animals have personalities. They're individuals. They have likes, they have dislikes. And most importantly. Okay.
4: So if they're a thing, you're more likely to deny them certain protections.
2: That's exactly right. They're not objects. They're not inanimate objects in the way that Descartes thought animals couldn't suffer. These mm-hmm. animals are individuals. Mm-hmm. They're smart. They're social. And most importantly, they don't want to suffer. Okay, so do you draw a line between something that can suffer that's alive and something
4: that— presumably can't suffer that's also alive, like a blade of grass.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. I think that if someone is capable of suffering, I'd prefer not to cause him or her to suffer. I believe that the treatment of animals is such an important moral decision that we're making that future generations really are going to look back at our current treatment of animals in utter revulsion.
0: And I believe the children are the future. (laughs) Teach them well and let them lead the way.
4: You've been listening to Talk Radio and I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I want to thank Temple Grandin for putting time in her day to to Come to my office and give us a Star Talk interview. And my in studio experts, Dr. Paul Wong from Autism Speaks, the non profit organization thinking about those challenges and problems, and Paul Shapiro from the Humane Society of the United States. And Chuck, as always, it's great to have you as my co host. And it's always great to be here. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio. As always, I do.